2: British Summertime is finally here and we want you to make the most of it by getting to know more of the history you love with a subscription to BBC History magazine. Subscribe this summer and get six issues for just £24.99, saving 30% on the shop price. Plus, when you sign up, you will also receive a book of your choice from Russia, Revolution and Civil War 1917-1921 by Anthony Beaver, In Search of the Dark Ages by Michael Wood, signed edition, or. In Search of Mary Seacole, The Making of a Cultural Icon by Helen Rappaport, signed edition. To take advantage of this offer and for more information, visit www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash Summer Reads 2022. Offer ends on the 5th of August 2022. Offer only available to UK residents. Please visit website for terms and conditions. <laughs>
0: And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. 2022 is the History Extra podcast's 15th birthday, so to mark 15 years of fascinating historical conversations, we've asked 15 historians to nominate a figure from history who they think deserves their 15 minutes of fame. Some are inspiring people who deserve more airtime today, Others are those whose significance in history has been overlooked. And some simply led fascinating and unexpected lives. Our guest for today's episode is Dr Mark Morris. Speaking to Emily Griffith, Mark reveals why he's nominated St Wilfrid, an early medieval saint and religious church reformer.
2: Hi Mark, it's lovely to be chatting to you today.
0: It's great to be on.
2: So you've chosen to nominate St Wilfrid, can you briefly explain who Wilfred was and what are we talking about here?
3: Uh, Wilfred was a Bishop of Northumbria in the first instance. He was also a Bishop of other places. And we are talking about the 7th century for the most part, but he lived such a long and interesting life that he shuffles on into the early 8th century.
2: So this was a significant amount of time ago. How has Wilfred's story come down to us through history?
3: Uh, well, we're very fortunate with Wilfred. I mean, we're talking about in the, um, to give it a little bit more context, we're talking about the 7th century is, is a crucial century in terms of the Christianisation of of Britain, in particular the uh, Christianisation of the Anglo-Saxons. Uh, so, um, that's a period when for the first time really we get much fuller written sources because prior to that point prior to the advent of Christianity these people have been pagans and and, and as such uh, largely illiterate so suddenly we have Bede he's one way in which the story of the conversion as a whole comes down to us Bede is writing in the early 8th century 730s um, so he tells some of, of, of Wilfred's story but even better, in a way, um, Wilfred um, is the subject of a contemporary biography. He would call it a saint's life, um, but it's really unlike other saint's lives in that it's so political and so polemical that hagiography doesn't really begin to cover it. It's, it's like a propaganda piece because Wilfred's life and Wilfred himself, he was such a controversial and larger than life character that clearly his acolytes, after he's, he was dead, felt the need to defend his reputation. So pretty much uniquely, I think, of all the characters featured in Bede, we have this counterpoint to Bede in the shape of the life of Wilfred. So that they're the two sources that tell us um, what Wilfred was about.
2: I want to come back to this idea of him being slightly controversial later, but you're talking about this being a significant time in terms of medieval Christianity, where did Wilfred exactly fit into this picture?
3: Well, as I say, Wilfrid is Bishop of Northumbria when he's um, in his 30s, but he's born in Northumbria in, I think we can sort of narrow the date down to 634, so the fourth decade of the 7th century. And at that time, Northumbria is, and the rest of what later becomes England is, as I say, largely pagan. Conversion has only been going since the late 6th century. And in Northumbria, only for a few years... Um, so he's born into a world which is largely pagan in terms of his social status. He's not royal, but he's sufficiently well connected that he ends up at the royal court. So he's, he's obviously the son of some um, uh, fa- vaguely well-to-do family. And he ends up at the, the court of the kings of Northumbria. And he is then sort of sent out to live on Lindisfarne, which is the cradle of Christianity in the north. Again, I mean, Lindisfarne had only been founded uh, around the time of, of Wilfred's birth. And as a teenager, he's sent out there um, really as a helpmeet to a disabled monk. And he quickly tires of that. He's clearly a man of huge intelligence, as the rest of his clear career proves. And he, he, he desires to go to Rome. He obviously, you know, he's he's. Reading, um, uh, you know, uh, Christian texts. He's reading um, Christian fathers, and clearly feels that the, the 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 center of the universe, as far as as he's concerned, is going to be Rome. So he sets off in his late teens, all the way s- south to Kent, and after a pit stop in Kent, he ends up in southern Francia, and eventually he goes to Rome. So that's really um, the, 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 I think the the turning point of his life, or the great kind of revelation in his life, is he sees Rome. And if you've come from Northumbria or indeed anywhere in Britain, In the 7th century, you've never seen a community of more than a few hundred people. There are no towns to speak of in that period. And then all of a sudden, he's in a city which, whilst nothing compared to its imperial heyday, when millions of people roamed the streets of Rome there 's probably over one hundred thousand people still in Rome, so it must have just been mind blowing and of course there 's all the Roman architecture, which some of which still stands today, like the Colosseum or the, the, the Trajan 's column, but that would have been you know, those things were still there in the seventh century, obviously, and a whole heap more so it 's a mind blowing experience and he comes back to Britain um, completely converted to the Roman idea of what Christianity should be, and that sets him at loggerheads with the, the tradition in which he's been raised, which is the, the Celtic tradition, the Irish tradition on Lindisfarne. And all kinds of fireworks, therefore, ensue.
2: From this point of Wilfred returning from Rome, what were some of the headline events of his life?
3: Well, I mean, from that point, so the, the, the main headline event, the, the place where he first comes to prominence is the Synod of Whitby, which is a victory for the Roman church, in that, that Oswy says, well, we have to go with Rome. And according to um, his biographer, um, uh the, he's called Stephen of Ripon, who writes the life of Wilfred um Wilfred is a kind of model of eloquence and politeness and, and according to B he's kind of clearly very rude and abrasive and sort of dismisses the Celtic church as kind of um you know simpletons who are sort of like you know he says at one point you know the rest of the world follows this this Roman tradition and you're just kind of people from a, a small island a dot in the sea you know so that that brings him to kind of public prominence. Um, Soon after that, I say soon after that, a few years after that, he eventually becomes Bishop of Northumbria. Um, and But then his career from then on, which, as I say, lasts a very long time, it's absolutely crammed with incident because, because of his personality um, and because of the way he thinks what he thinks a bishop should do, i.e. exercise great power, he... he keeps rubbing up against and falling foul of secular rulers. So he, he, he is very pally with Oswy's successor, a king of Northumbria called Edgefrith at the start of his reign. And um, when Edgefrith is kind of conquering lands from the Picts to the north and the Britons to the west, um, Wilfrid is there kind of cheering him on and saying, you're doing good, good you know, God's work here. And, you know, look at how kind of pl- pleased God will be with all the land you've got at sword point. Um, but then he falls out with Edgefrith. He falls out with Edgefrith's new queen. Um, the, the, his queen quite rightly uh, um, she points out that um, uh, you know Wilfrid has all this power and all these retainers and all you know just it's, it's just a sort of a, a rival really. So he ends up in um, he eventually ends up in Sussex, which is still pagan. He becomes bishop of Sussex. He converts thousands of people in Sussex. Um, after sort of um, the the Archbishop of Canterbury dies, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury Theodore, who'd been instrumental in removing him from from Northumbria, um, he goes back to Northumbria. Um, is is and this is again after Edfrith's death. So there is a new Northumbrian king on the throne with whom Wilfrid quickly falls out again. So. He ends up on two occasions going back to Rome to plead his case. So he's, he's clearly Northumbria is where his heart lies. But he, his, as I say, his life is crammed with incident. And, and it's it's all the politics that makes him so different to other... Famous Anglo-Saxon saints. I mean, the the I, I have to confess, the reason I nominated Wilfred was because I hadn't heard of him until I started researching this Anglo-Saxon's book. I had heard of other, more conventionally pious Northumbrian saints like Aidan and like Cuthbert, and when you compare. Um, Wilfred with Cuthbert, you know, Cuthbert is kind of like you know he's kind to children and animals, and he you know doesn't do very much and meanders round from village to village on foot, converting and having a fairly conventional, what you would think of as a conventional saint's life. And Wilfred, by contrast, is all over the place. He's in Wessex, he's in Mercia, he's in East Anglia, he's in Kent, he's in Rome, he's fighting on the beaches with pagans. You know, he's 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 engineering coups. So he's a he's a fantastic. Um, His life, his long life, is a fantastic way to to navigate the tumultuous events that are going on in both Britain and Francia and Rome during this period, this crucial period of conversion.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: He moves from one polity to the other, one Anglo-Saxon kingdom to the other, and very quickly pals up with the powerful people. So he's, he's clearly enormously charismatic and influential...
4: Visit BetterHelp.com slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, historyextra slash History Extra.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster.
2: From quite an unconventional life, how did Wilfred actually come to be canonized as a saint?
3: Well, the process of being canonized as a saint, as I understand it in the sort of seventh, eighth, ninth centuries is not nearly so rigorous as it becomes in the later middle ages. So you become a saint simply guided I think by popular acclamation, people saying there were miracles worked after his death he he lived a devout and religious life um and so uh, sainthood is not is not sort of centrally controlled. I think I'm I think I'm right in saying that. It's, I mean that's certainly the case as late as the Norman Conquest, and a subject to which I know a little bit about. And that's that's something that really strikes the Normans when they take over in 1066. They have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of, of old English saints, and they look at their kind of saints' lives, or they listen to the the traditions that are handed down by their 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 English um, um, colleagues. And they say, I'm not entirely sure this guy qualifies as a saint or this woman qualifies as a saint. So um, I think I think there were clearly people at the time with Wilfred who felt that his behavior was less than saintly. Like a lot of people who have these controversial careers, um, there were clearly people who thought Wilfred was just absolutely the business, you know, that he was exactly what a bishop should be. And he, as I say, he dies um, in the early 8th century surrounded by adoring acolytes and he's clearly achieved a great deal the life of St Wilfred is such a partisan source that one cannot help react against it and think come off it this is so obviously propaganda it makes you think worse of him because it's trying so hard to tell you how wonderful he was so for example it says "You know, he was. Oh, he never, he never drank more than a glass of wine and anyone who says so is clearly not telling the truth and, and we can produce many witnesses that will affirm this and you think Clearly, lots of people must have been going around saying Wilfred was a terrible old lush, you know. Um, so it is, it is a source that you react to. Having said that, his achievements were huge. I mean, he is the guy who, um, you know, sort of rests Northumbria from the Celtic tradition to the Roman tradition. He's the guy who converts loads of people in Sussex. He, and he's clearly a, a sort of seductive voice in the ear of powerful laymen because he not only sort of he, he moves from one polity to the other one Anglo-Saxon kingdom to the other and very quickly pals up with the powerful people so he's, he's clearly enormously charismatic and influential and, and does drive a great deal of change and probably the, com, you know, the conversion process itself would have been slower without Wilfred and other men like him but at the same time lots of people suffer as a result of his rise and his his um it's kind of in intransigence, you know, that his belief that he is right and there is only one way to do this and it doesn't matter who gets flattened uh in the in the process. So, um yeah, very, I think a very, very interesting and, and as I say, little known figure, possibly because possibly because he dies in his bed. I mean he dies as I say, as an old man in his mid seventies, surrounded by adoring acolytes. And had he been martyred as a result of his many clashes with many different kings, had any one of those ended in a Thomas Thomas Beckett-style martyrdom, I'm sure he'd be a lot more famous. So it's kind of almost ironic the fact that he goes on so long and achieves so much, mainly to the fact that he's now largely forgotten.
2: What would you say is Wilfred's legacy?
3: If if you ask Wilfred himself, or let's, let's look at what Wilfred's own biographer says, he was clearly... His major achievement, he thought was uh, correcting the English church or in the first instance the Northumbrian church but by extension the wider English church uh, correcting what he came to see as the heresy of following the the Irish or Celtic tradition because that is writ large in his biography which is as I say written after his death and the one thing that keeps being trotted out whenever... Wilfred's many accusers come at him and of course we're never really told what Wilfred's crimes actually are what his own faults are because they're airbrushed out of his biography. They were just told that everything, everyone who accused him was just lying and wasn't to be believed, you know. But what's always jotted out in his defence is look at his achievement. I've got a bit of the biography in front of me and he says, did I not convert the whole Northumbrian nation to celebrating Easter at the proper time as the Holy See demanded and having the proper Roman tonsure in the form of a crown instead of the old way of shaving the back of the head? Did I not teach you to chant according to the practice of the early church with two choirs, etc., etc.? Did I not bring monastic life into line with the rule of St. Benedict, never before introduced to these parts? And have I not. And so he goes on, you know, and these are all things that he, he, had, he felt on his. You know, from the time he was in his late teens, he thought this is the proper way to do it, this is the way God wants it to be done, and, and we are steeped in error in Northumbria and, and, you know, in other parts and other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. So he saw that as his great achievement. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's something you can't take away from him because, you know, the Roman church was ultimately the victor in that, in that ideological struggle. Um, but I think at the time that, you know, the, the other thing that's very evident from his biography is lots of people were very sore about Wilfred. He made lots of enemies and he, he, he led forced conversions and he really didn't care who got squashed uh in in his kind of you know drive to to bring this change about so um it's very i think there's a very useful um actually eulogy in in Bede. bead who, who was kind of lukewarm on, on on wilfred he kind of you know i think he had the measure of him and recognized his achievements but recognized that he put a lot of people's noses out of joint and Bede talks about it's not Bede's own um uh, eulogy, Bede has the inscription on Wilfred's tomb which as I remember was kind of conventional but it it, it describes him as um, Wilfred Magnus, Wilfred the Great and I think that's a very useful word from our point of view because his impact was undoubtedly great, he is arguably the most important individual in terms of the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons, arguably more important than even someone like Archbishop Theodore or even um, um, St Augustine in terms of his the length of his life and his impact. But great doesn't necessarily mean good, does it? Great can just mean massive impact. Um, so I think great is a, is, is, is a useful word for a man like Wilfred.
2: My final question for you then is, why do you personally think that Wilfred deserves his 15 minutes of fame?
3: Well, I think at the risk of repeating myself is because his impact is so so huge. Um, and, and, and because he... he this I hope this isn't just me, but as I say, I've been doing medieval history for a fair chunk of my life now, about half my life, uh, or oh, maybe more. Gosh, and and I, you know, I knew about lots of characters in the um, the pre-conquest period. Um, if uh, you know someone like Alfred or King Offa or uh, even um, Athelflad, Lady of the Mercians, or Emma of Normandy, whoever these figures were. If I didn't know their story inside, I'd at least heard of them, I had the rough idea of what was going on. you know, in the case of Wilfrid, I couldn't have picked him out of a lineup of Anglo-Saxon saints, you know, for any amount of money. He, was, he w- wasn't really a name to conjure with. And as I say, I could have done that. I could have easily told you a little bit about Dunstan or a little bit about Cuthbert because they are better known. Um, and yet, yeah, as soon as I kind of read the life of Wilfrid, I thought, this guy's life is phenomenal and he 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 sort of traveled the you know the known world and he he, he argued with almost everybody in it and and he wrought such enormous change and I think you know that's that's what 's interesting to me i mean it 's what 's very useful as an author it's it's, it's it's great for individuals at the time if they're they 're pious and god fearing but if they don 't do very much then they 're not going to serve your story as an author. Someone like Wilfred, who, who, who is just relentless and, and constantly on the move and constantly clashing with other people, is a real gift to an author who needs to cover that same territory himself or cover that same narrative. So um, for all those reasons, I, I would I would give Wilfred more due, you know, and and, and, and uh, that's why I thought I'd nominate him for his 15 minutes.
0: That was Dr. Mark Morris speaking to Emily Briffitt. Mark is a historian and author whose most recent book is The Anglo-Saxons, A History of the Beginnings of England. If you're enjoying this series and would like early access to more episodes to hear more historians nominating people who deserve their 15 minutes of fame, go to historyextra.com forward slash 15 minutes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.